Hello and welcome to the IntraFish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. Editor Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo and Senior Business Reporter Rachel Sapin. Today is going to be Salmon Day. We're going to be talking about both wild Alaska salmon amongst ourselves, and we'll also be joined by Dog Sletmo. He's with DNB, the Norwegian lender, to talk about farm salmon and the outlook there. So let's start with Alaska. Last year was a miserable season for Alaska, in particular in Bristol Bay. High inventories, low prices, companies under cash crunch. It's been uh, one of the worst seasons in recent memory. Now, there's some good that's come out of it, and that's it in times like this when things are very, very difficult. Sometimes new ideas can rise to the front, and we're going to talk about a couple of those today and what it might mean for Bristol Bay. But first, John, can you take us back to uh, mid-2023, to the Alaska season? Just paint a picture of how bad it was and how badly processors have been affected. Yeah, um, it kind of started before then, but, um, you know, came to a head, obviously, as as the June-July period began. Um, but they went into the season carrying massive amounts of excess inventory. This was from the bumper crop the year before, 60 million fish, record harvest uh, in the bay. Uh but uh, a lot of it was not great quality. Um, it came, they were trying to move it into a market that was being hit head on by inflation and weaker consumer spending, not just in the US, of course, but Europe and many other countries uh, besides. So um, that kind of is how they entered the season. Now, the catch this past year was not a record by any means it was more consistent with you know averages uh for the fishery but they still had that all that inventory so they never really kind of regained their footing from that point i don't think uh maybe rachel uh sees it a little differently i'm not sure but i don't think they ever regained their footing so what that did was force them to look at their balance sheets and say, uh-oh, you know, there's no way we can pay what we've been paying to fishermen, a dollar, dollar fifteen, roughly the last few years. This year, we're going to have to do this severe haircut. Um, and it was severe. It was, ended up opening at 50 cents and went up a dime, basically, uh, by the end uh, when everything was done. So, you could imagine the fishermen were not happy. Um, and uh, here we are today with uh, really um, knowing how bad it, it, it is. How what happened in June, what we wondered, like, how bad is this? Now we kind of know. We've got Trident selling off four of its plants. We've got Peter Pan. They just closed their King Cove plant for the winter. Say they're going to reopen it uh, for the this salmon season. We'll see. Uh, Ocean Beauty, um, OBI, um, they just shuttered a plant. Um, so, you know, any objective person looking at this can see that 
things have not straightened out. They're struggling to straighten them out. In some cases, the banks are in charge of some of their money uh, in the sense of inventory and things like that. So it's just not good. And one other thing to point out, you know, in in the in the long continuum of Alaska salmon processing, most of these processors are diversified. They do whitefish, they do crab, blah blah blah. So a bad season in salmon usually was covered by how well they did in crab or how well they did in whitefish. Well, last year there was no crab to do, so take that savior off the table and whitefish market were collapsing and you know the whole russian thing so that really didn't save them at all either so they had nowhere to turn and thus where we are rachel you've been reporting a lot on uh on all of alaska salmon of course but you've been reporting on uh a company called circle seafoods um and another company that i just did a story on northland seafoods um, have an interesting history together and are kind of after um, similar projects, quite similar projects, but different in some ways too. But tell us a little bit about Circle Seafoods and how it's going to be different and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, Circle Seafoods um, and John, I think you put it all very well. We're in a tough spot in Alaska and everyone is looking for something to save everything. And, uh, you know, Circle Seafoods, they are a new company that is taking that taking on that very challenging tasks um they are a new what's called like a mobile salmon processing barge and they are aiming to go to alaska's southeast uh this this summer uh, 2024 where there's kinks and chums and they are going to process um fish mobily and try to get a better price for the fish and they actually operate out of aberdeen washington so they're going to be uh, bringing that fish back on the floating processor and um, they will have it available. Um, I believe they're hoping year round. They're trying to make it a more sustainable business model. Um, and they're kind of hoping they can help um, salmon fishermen make a little more money and avoid a lot of the issues we've seen in recent years with, um, you know, uh, processing capacity and getting fish to processors and, um, you know, just having very seasonal salmon markets. So they're really trying to tackle um, a way to to get the salmon processed and, you know, keep the fish valuable all year long. Yeah. And I mean, one of the one of the things that's kind of um, the hallmark of these projects is the quality as well. Uh, and I find that really interesting about uh, about Circle and uh, Northline is again timing is everything and i think a couple of years ago when these companies were trying to drum up interest trying to get investment it was a lot harder because times weren't nearly as tough and so now it appears they've hit it at just the right time and i think that focus on quality may be the one area where you can really start to differentiate yourself uh, in Alaska. Um, not to say there isn't good quality coming out now, but there have been a lot of really 
rough fish coming out. Um, as the grading goes, number threes, as you can imagine, they're not number ones. Um, and, and there's been reportedly a lot of fish at that, at that level. And you can see them when you go to grocery stores. I've written about this. All three of us have written about this in the past. And it's, it's a difficult ask to ask a consumer to go grab a wild salmon filet when it's laying alongside a farm salmon filet. Um, looking the way that it that it does, so um, so John, what's your view on what these uh, what these projects might mean? Yeah, it's it's unclear yet. You know, this is um, this has been tried before back in the day, so to speak, um, but not to the level that this is, not to the amount of financing that both of these uh, companies have. So this is a, a, a new uh, uh, precedent uh, being set here, should they succeed. But w- what will it do? Um, well, uh, you know, the, I don't know about Circle, but Northline is talking about profit sharing with the fishermen. Okay, that's that's different. I mean, Silver Bay has a relationship set up like that with their fishermen, but uh, as far as I know, none of the other processors have uh, that type of relationship. So right away, that probably is attractive to um, salmon fishermen. So will they leave uh, whoever they're fishing for now, Peter Pan, Trident, whatever, will they leave them and start fishing for these guys uh, this year? tough to know, you know, not, not gonna, not gonna know that for a little while. Um, what will it do to the shore guys that, you know, the guys that have been there forever will, will it take fish away from plants and force more plants to close? It's a possibility. I, I think one of the unintended consequences or one of the interesting consequences of this might be the impact on these communities in Ketchikan and Dillingham and all these places where, you know, the processor has is the focal for employment and tax base and all that. I mean, that structure is already being up upset with some of these recent moves by Trident, Peter Pan and and OBI. But if they were, if these uh, floaters were to be really successful and draw more fish away from the shore, so to speak, that, you know, that could have some very big ramifications on the local communities in Alaska. And, um, you know, we'll be watching that coast closely because I don't think, I don't think a lot of people have thought through what that might mean, and and I'm not saying that I do, but you know it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, ADFNG has a map of all the processors in different parts of the state. In Bristol Bay, there are 23 companies operating processing f- facilities. Now, granted, most of them are small, but all the big guys are there: OBI, Peter Pan, Alaska General, uh, Leader Creek, etc. Do you need all that processing capacity? I don't know. Um, maybe. I mean, maybe in the 60 million pound year of 2022, you you do or fish year. Um, but I don't know. It just seems. It seems to me there's a lot more processing capacity than there are fish right now. So, Rachel, I'm curious. Just in your coverage, you talked to a lot of fishermen last season when things were 
it was becoming more clear what the price, the average price per pound would be for fishermen. And they were very upset uh, about that. Do you think that that's sort of been, that's that's given some fertile ground for a, for new concepts like the North Line um, and, and maybe has fishermen a little more interested in these kind of newer concepts because of because of last season? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think fishermen really are looking for some security and stability right now. And that is not something they are getting from the traditional processing sector, um, particularly in light of news like, um, uh, you know, OBI uh, not having one of its facilities in Kodiak, uh, that recent announcement, and also Peter Pan temporarily shuttering one of its facilities and obviously Trident in the middle of selling uh, numerous uh, Alaska plants, there's just a lot of uh, fear, I think, among fishermen right now. And, and yeah, they are definitely looking for a new, new model. You know, my impression just when I visited the North Line, um, I guess it was uh, a couple of weeks ago now, and just talking to the CEO and some of the other people involved in the project, is my impression is that the the fishermen that came over to the north line didn't need a lot of convincing and in fact they said they got more requests than they were able to get i think they have about 100 boats signed up and a large part of why they said the fishermen came in wasn't because of a higher price necessarily um it wasn't promising that you're going to make more money the profit sharing was part of it but the ownership of the quality of the fish is uh is i think part of what got got fishermen interested and the north line owners and and operators they have been uh working in the bristol bay region for quite a while and so a lot of the fishermen there uh that will be fishing for north line are local local fishermen um but john you brought up a very good point that yes, uh, money going back into the local economy via higher uh, fish prices, if indeed they're able to get a higher return, uh, that's great. But also there is tax-based concerns I think a lot of people are are nervous about. And that's not just Northline coming in. It's also, as, as you guys have both mentioned, it's also about these, these companies closing down. You know, I think that um, the, one of the things that is, is going to make the biggest difference if this works is what you mentioned, Rachel, the idea of year-round uh, selling. And that was another thing that really uh, the CEO of Northline, Ben Blakey, was really emphasizing was that they're looking at how they can adopt the farm salmon model of how can you get fish out year round and i think that's going to be really really critical if they can pull it off and it's a it's a big if i it's important to note a little bit of the history and i'll i'll talk about the history of these two companies in just a second but it's really um it is i think paramount if there's going to be additional value into bristol bay that they're able to sell uh to sell uh, fish at a higher price but to do that, it has to be higher quality. Um, and that, apparently, there's feedback that the the whole round product, when it's cut up and thawed and put onto shelves, is of a higher quality than, than some of the others that's out there. But, again, nobody has told me that I have not eaten the fish, but there have been some third-party um, 
third-party audits that have said the quality is better. Um, so yeah, uh, just quickly, um, and Rachel, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about the the investment that's gone on, on into Circle in just a moment. But I want to make sure that we kind of explain that Circle Seafoods and Northline Seafoods actually have kind of their, their genesis in, in a similar spot. So the Circle Seafoods uh, CEO is formerly uh, the Northline Seafood CEO and a partner with uh, ben Blank Blakey, who is now the, the CEO of Northline. Um, now, they had a, an earlier barge that was testing this concept, and it ran aground in Bristol Bay. Um, an anchor anchor chain broke in really high winds, and, um, and it pushed the barge up onto the beach. There was three miles of debris. Um, so it was not what you would call an, uh, you know, an auspicious end to that experiment. So, um, from there, Blakey went his way and Pat Glab, uh, went, went on to his way to found their respective companies. But the, the backbone and the idea of both of them is, is still, um, roughly the same, you know, the same ideas, but both of them would, would very much argue, I am sure, about all the ways that they're different and maybe all the ways one is better than the other, I imagine. But Rachel, tell us a little bit about Circle Seafood's funding and where they've gotten their money from. Um, and they've been pretty, pretty successful. Yeah, and that's interesting. Um, you bring up their histories too. I know I've talked, I've spoken with um, their people over there and they are very aware of the last issue with the last Floating barge and uh, emphasized to me quite a few times that they uh, are going to ensure that does not happen with this with this new project. So I think it's it's been a big focus, but we'll have to see this summer. Um, but yeah, in terms of the investors, um, what's really interesting about Circle is it was a mix of equity, debt, and new market tax credits. And the new market tax credit is kind of interesting because that had some. Uh, bigger investors uh, like U.S. Bank and some community development entities like McKinley. Uh, but that credit is actually um, kind of a way to attract private capital into low-income communities. Um, it permits individual and corporate investors to receive a tax credit against their federal income tax in exchange for making equity investments in specialized financial community development entities. So it's kind of, it looks like a way to fund projects um, in areas where they might not be able to get the financing, which is kind of interesting. And um, it also has some funding from, some debt finance, financing from, um, looks like Native American Bank, Clearinghouse, CDFI, National Community Investment Fund, um, also has some USDA business and industry loans. So there is quite a bit of, um, it looks like a kind of, mix of private and public incentive, um, which would make sense for Alaska, uh, you know, that has has some issues attracting investors sometimes, particularly to seafood, uh, just because, you know, you have aging infrastructure and equipment out there and um, it can be hard to find the right investors for those projects. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that um, the different approaches to financing have been um, so uh so so different between Northline and for circle but you know i'll note like you said rachel some of those smaller 
some of those, you know, getting some of the smaller investors on board is really, really important and, and getting community buy-in in particular. So Alaska, Alaska Growth Capital that McKinley, uh, it's part of the McKinley system, I guess you could say, but it's 50% owned by the Bristol Bay Native Corporation. Um, similarly, uh, Northline, Northline is uh, among its investors, it counts the Bristol Bay Economic Development Corporation, which is not a native corporation, but it's a rural, remote, regional uh, corporation. So you are seeing kind of local regions be interested, whether or not they'll be able to parlay that into, say, other barges or, um, or other, um, other projects like this will actually bring value into the community kind of remains to be seen. But similarly, Northline did end up raising the money that they needed. I think both of these projects, as I said, initially, I think it's a pretty big ask. You're walking into a room and saying, all right, I need millions and millions of dollars to build a barge. And I think banks kind of laugh you out of the room, not to mention venture capital or private equity funds who are looking for something a little more exciting. But what I think is interesting about Circle is the way that they've kind of positioned themselves a bit more from a marketing, I guess you could say a marketing perspective. Uh, they seem to be attracting a little bit more attention from the venture capital uh, folks that are looking at kind of this regenerative circular economy. And so they just had one company come in, a big VC uh, group that uh, is, is working on oceans. And, um, I think that you'll see probably more of those kinds of investors showing some, some interest in these projects. Well, I mean, one thing the investors probably will never invest in again is the current shore plants. Uh, I mean, it, it just seems to me that any interest in, um, I don't know, uh, redoing those or you know modernizing them from an investor point of view i don't i I'm, correct me if i'm wrong drew but i don't see it there so the fact that investment money is going in to to the sector in a different way um that's interesting right because investors are gamblers at the end of the day they're looking at something going huh maybe this is going to work. It's certainly the model that we have right now is struggling. So, well, let's let's take a flyer on it. That's the way it feels to me. I don't see anybody sinking money into, you know, uh, a plant, another plant in Alaska. Yeah, well, uh, we're about to find out as the as the season approaches. So, um, well, let me put you guys on the spot then, and I'll put myself on the spot, but do you see more of this type of structure maybe happening in Alaska? Rachel, just from your interviews uh, with folks both doing the projects and uh, outside of the projects kind of observing, do you think we're going to see more of this type of uh, technology? Yeah, and I think in particular, if it works this summer, we will. I think there are, you know, people who are interested. Um, it is pretty different from other processing and processing models and processors. Um, but, you know, it is exciting. And I, I agree with John. It's just you can't get things funded in the traditional manner. No one wants to buy a big, you know, big plant on shore and uh, redo that. So I, you know, it seems like 
this would be one way to go. And it's, um, it, it will, it will really, I think it is going to depend a lot on this summer. Like you said, I think there are always investors who are interested, but, uh, you know, they want someone else to kind of try it out first before they jump in. But, um, yeah, I think, I think just new ways of funding, um, operations in Alaska is just going to be what's going to happen going forward. Cause we've kind of hit this hard stop, um, with how we've been operating in Alaska for several decades. At least it, it appears like that from my reporting. Yeah, I agree with Rachel. This is the summer that will, you know, define the future in, in a lot of ways, perhaps. I mean, and and Rachel did a great job covering this, uh, the salmon season this summer, because when it ended, the amount of anger and frustration and fear and insecurity on the part of fishermen was massive. Uh, Drew, you remember back when they had uh, the strike, and I can't even remember how many years it, it was, but um, I had not seen anything like that until this this summer. So um, what what we reported and what has happened is fishermen have, you know, they they want another model. They they feel like they're uh, indentured servants to some degree, I, I think, you know. And, you know, to be fair, fishermen grumble and they're always kind of angry and they bark and but, you know, then they go back to what they were doing because fishermen want to fish. They they don't want to push pencils across paper. They don't want to look at spreadsheets. They want to fish, but they want to get treated fairly for their work. And, you know, so I, I just, I think Rachel hit it on the head. If these guys succeed, the whole game is going to probably change to some degree. I mean, just think of Bristol Bay this this summer with a gigantic barge uh, sitting there. I mean, just the picture of that is, is, is uh, you know, amazing because that doesn't happen, right? So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, it's easy. I agree with both of you. So um, I, don't, I don't have to go on with a long explanation of why I, I think of that because you two articulated it really well. We'll find out what happens. So... This season, the Northline and Circle Seafoods will be fishing the Northline in Bristol Bay and Circle Seafoods down in Southeast Alaska. And like everybody else, we'll be watching very closely. Well, joining us now is Doug Sletmo. He is with DNB, one of the largest lenders to the salmon industry and the seafood industry at large. Uh, Doug, thanks for joining us. I, I want to talk to you a little bit today about the outlook for the salmon farming sector in in the near term and in the long term. There's been some headwinds recently. The Norwegian tax scheme uh, that came into place in uh, 2023 was announced in 2022. Uh, We have EC allegations of price fixing. We have high inflation. uh, And we also have higher interest rates as well, which can impact CapEx and impact the M&A landscape. So, Doug, just... Give us a state of the industry. Uh, where do we sit today? I think actually the outlook is quite uh, good. And it's simply because, you know, the prices look like they uh, will continue to be quite strong. You know, cost is also uh, high, but so far, you know, 
the price is sort of winning the battle and the margins are uh, are good. Uh, I think uh, maybe the biggest worry for the industry right now is, uh, at least in Norway, is what I would call the social license, which is, you know, essentially how popular are you in sort of broad groups and in society, and I think there the industry has a job to do in order to uh, improve its uh, its relationship. You know, that's interesting because I would say that maybe 15 years ago, there was um, more concern about this, or it seemed like it was more of uh, a hurdle that the industry would have to jump over. But I sort of got the sense in the past mm, five uh, to ten that the industry was winning that battle a little bit. But now it really seems like it's kind of gone the other direction. Why is that? Yeah, I agree with you. That fits with my impression uh, also. I, th- I think the industry has done a good job, say the last, I would say maybe a decade, in you know sharing facts and improving a lot of uh, things. So. In that context, you could say it's a little bit, uh, a little bit surprising. I think maybe you know one dynamic uh, is simply that you know the industry has gotten much bigger and it's getting uh, more attention. Like you know, a very concrete way you can see that in Norway is that it used to be only you know the specialist press, uh, you know, like yourself who you know wrote about the industry. Now you see it gets a lot more coverage in the national uh, media because it's gotten bigger and more. Uh, important, and then I think also the national media, you know, independent of topic, is often a lot more focused on like you know conflict and uh, controversy, etc. So, with these restrictions on production, how does that change the supply and demand landscape? I think uh, you know it's maybe a little bit of a paradox because you know all industries want to grow, and this industry doesn't really grow that much in uh, in volume uh, anymore. But at the same time, you know that uh, means that the prices are really high, and we think they will stay really high. You know, it's difficult to look too far into the future, but I usually say I think the next ten years the sand price will be really strong. And the basis for that is simply that supply growth is very low in all major farming regions, and the reason for that is that you know governments are very restrictive in giving out new capacity. Uh, you know, sustainability requirements keep getting uh, stricter and uh, stricter. And then, but, you know, we also know that there's a lot of uh, stuff going on with new technologies and offshore and land-based, et cetera. You know, so that that could change the equation at some point in the future. But the lead time for those technologies uh, is so long. So in 20 years, that could have a big uh, impact. I think, say, the next 10, uh, less so. And how about on the demand side? When it comes to demand, it looks like that you know continues to grow uh, structurally. But I think that's one thing people forget a little bit, and that is you know demand and supply are kind of related. I often say that you know nobody demanded an iPhone in two thousand and six because it didn't exist, and nobody understood that that would be a fantastic thing. So you know if you can't grow the volumes of salmon, you can't introduce it to new consumers. Uh, Either so long term, that you know, could have a negative impact on the growth rate of demand. 
So the price inflation has been interesting because it it hasn't in some markets appeared to drag on demand. But what is your view on how this is impacting the market? Are you seeing signs that consumers may be pushing back on these levels in any markets? Seems that it hasn't been a huge problem. Like you know, if you simply look at the. Uh, some price, although you know, we know in some segments, uh, you know, it is uh, problematic. Like you know, in the, you know, uh, lower, uh, you know, non sort of premium uh, segments, etc. Um, but I think part of the picture also is that you know, food inflation has been so broad. So the salmon, uh, depending a little bit on what country you look at, but generally. The, Inflation in salmon has been quite equal to the general food inflation and also quite equal to like, you know, key substitutes, uh, you know, like uh, chicken and pork. You talked about new tech just a moment ago, uh, offshore, land-based. I'm curious with interest rates and some of the other economic headwinds, do you see those capital-intensive projects continuing? I think there will be continued interest i think offshore is the most complicated one because they have ended up in a very unfavorable tax uh, situation where it looks likely that you know if they succeed they would be included in this resource rent tax regime uh, but they're not in the beginning and that means you get sort of an odd asymmetry where uh, you don't get the deduction if you fail but you get the very high tax if you succeed so i think that's the key problem for for offshore. If you look at uh, land-based, you know the, there's no tax uh, issue, and I think the outlook there is yeah, is improving. I think you know the problem in land-based has been uh, you know there's been operational challenges in uh, Atlantic Sapphire, which has got a lot of uh, attention, obviously, and then there's been massive capex uh, inflation. And there's been high interest rates. So I think what is um, hopefully will be a little bit better going forward is that, you know, we see like, say, salmon evolution, it seems like they're doing quite well. It looks like, you know, maybe OnCue uh, is going in the right direction. I hear a lot of people are optimistic about uh, Nordic Aqua Partners in uh, China. So if you get some kind of you know, validation uh, in the eyes of uh, the financial markets that, you know, land-based salmon farming works. I think that would trigger uh, a new round of interest. And then I think when it comes to the capex inflation, at least, you know, it looks like it has stopped and stabilized and maybe it's starting to tick down uh, a little bit. So that's a positive thing. And also with interest rates, obviously, it's more expensive to finance things uh, than it used to be, but it also looks like, you know, interest rates uh, have kind of, most people feel that uh, they are also uh, also peaking. And then I think the last thing uh, that people forget, you know, a lot of people have looked at the uh, stock market performance of these land-based companies, which has, you know, been generally uh, awful. But, you know, that's not just about land-based salmon farming, that's generally about growth. Um, companies that don't have a positive cash flow independent of sector, you know, which get uh, hammered when interest rates uh, increased. So speaking of some of the impacts that interest rates can have on a sector, what's your view on consolidation right now? We've seen some action in Norway. 
over the past couple of years. Um, tell us about what else might come, both in Norway and cross-border. We think it will continue. You know, it's always difficult to say exactly what and then exactly uh, when. And we've seen historically that you know you often have a pattern where nothing happens and then a lot happens. So as you know, mentioned a lot. Uh, happened recently in Norway and then a few years ago there was a lot of activity in Chile but I think the underlying drivers towards consolidation are the same as they've always been and the challenge is also to large extent what it's always been which is that there are a lot more people who want to buy than who want to to sell uh, and then I think maybe an additional sort of more new driver in, uh, towards consolidation is that it seems like you know we have more biological problems than in the past, and they can be, you know, in one country but not the other, or or also just, you know, within one country there can be big variations. So if you have bigger units, you diversify the biological risk better. And I think also farmers in pretty much all major farming regions feel that political risk has increased the last few years, and so also by you know cross-border mergers, you also diversify political risk. Is there any? Um... Any country right now where you feel like the prospects are better for growth uh, than others? You know, the, the one country that grows fast is uh, Iceland, which, you know, has uh, very good natural uh, conditions. And it seems to me like, you know, the industry is constructive and it seems like the authorities are constructive, but I think they also have some of the same problems that Norway has in relation to the social lifestyle. There's a lot of uh, a lot of protests uh, against open pen farming in uh, in uh, Iceland, uh, unfortunately. There's also it seems to be you know a lot of uh, activity in Iceland related to land-based farming, and uh, they're also starting to you know look more seriously into offshore farming. So all that said, you're still bullish right now on on the sector over the course of the next few years, uh, and even long term as well. So, um, what do you think should keep salmon farmers up at night? I think it's uh, the relationship to uh, to the public and uh, the regulators. And I think uh, you know again, if you look at you know the recent debate in, in Norway, where there's been a lot of negative press related to. Fish welfare and even you know food safety. I think the instinct of the industry very often is to sort of address the consumer. I think we've seen that you know demand is surprisingly resilient in the face of these uh, issues. I think in this context, it's the Norwegian voter is a lot more important because the voter you know elects the politicians and the politicians make the laws and are the bosses of the regulators. I think uh, you know it can have. Uh, a negative impact on uh, regulation of the, the industry. I think that's actually a bigger risk than the uh, demand aspect. Well, Doug, I appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Uh, always great insight, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the near future. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Well, that's going to close out this week's edition of the Interfish podcast. Remember that you can go to interfish.com, find all our news there 24 7. Also a reminder, coming up is the Boston Seafood Show. We will be there with the Boston Leadership Breakfast that will be on March 11th. If you're interested, you can go to intrafishevents.com and sign up there. It's limited seating, so you want to move fast on that. All right, folks, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.